The dust, the noise, the terrible conditions, the pitiful sight of child laborers standing at their machines for hours on end. It's an outrage. Ma'am, I'll have to ask you to leave. Leave? I'm giving a speech. I have the right to do that in a public space. This is not a public space. It's Brigadier Bartley Bunny's Balloon and Burger Bistro, home of the Barking Bagel. That's a hot dog in a bun-shaped bagel. At Brigadier Bartley Bunny's Balloon and Burger Bistro, we put the fun back tell in. tell me about fun. Look at those underage workers just stuck at their machines. That's a kid's birthday party. They're playing Donkey Kong. That's what we do here, ma'am. Mainly kids' parties. But wasn't there, like, a public square here a few years ago? Yes, but now it's a mixed-use development owned by an investment company in Zurich. Well, where can I give my speech about conditions in that factory across the street? That's a cheesecake factory, ma'am. I don't think it's the kind of factory you have in mind. Oh, so now you're throwing me out, you rabbit-faced enemy of the people, you, you tool of the oligarchs? Oh, no. Brigadier Bartley Bunny's Balloon and Burger Bistro is a happy place. We never let you leave with a sad face. Try some complimentary bunny fries. Oh, you think you're going to buy me off with... Okay, I'll, I'll just try one. You see, cutting down on public space is a form of oppression. Wow, these are delicious. Want some more? Definitely. What were we talking about? Something super happy, I bet. Right, right. Here's a show about public squares or something. Can I order the cottontail chimichangas? And now he was arrested for yelling insomnia in a crowded mattress store. Colin McEnroe. It's, it's amazing the curtailment of my rights and of apparently that woman's rights as well. So welcome to our show. About <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, I wrote that intro. I shouldn't be laughing at it. But I, there's something about the way that she talks with her mouth full always makes me laugh. All right. So um, welcome to our show. It's about city squares. It's about public spaces um, and kind of maybe sort of the erosion of, of them under certain circumstances. Some of them are, in fact, now multi-use developments owned by investment companies in Zurich. And some of them are thriving. They're not all the same thing, too. I think that's an important uh, thing we'll try to get across today. Uh, joining us right now is uh, Katie Marin, uh, director of Friends of Highline and uh, the editor of City Parks, Public Places, Private Thoughts, and most recently, City Squares, 18 writers on the spirit and significance of squares around the world. Also with us, he's been with us before <clears throat> at one of our freshly squeezed events at Watkinson, David Bollier, activist, blogger, and author of eight books, including Think Like a Commoner, a short introduction to the life of the commons, and viral Spiral, How the Commoners Built a Digital Republic of Their Own. He also co-founded the Commons Strategies Group. Um, Katie Merritt, I'm going to begin with you uh, joining us from the studios of NPR in New York. Um, this is uh, a fascinating book. It's also a very, very beautiful book. It's full of wonderful pictures. Uh, I guess not all the pictures are happy, beautiful pictures, but it's the kind of book that makes you just want to drop it on the floor and get on a plane and go to all these places. Um, it, 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 however, it explores the notion of a public square, and the more you read it, the more you, re you realize a public square isn't just one thing. You know, Depending on where it is, how it was set up, who made it, uh, it, it can be any number of different things. Did, did you sort of work out two, three, or four distinct types uh, of public squares? That's a very interesting question. I came to this idea because there were so many protests going on in the last five years, and at the same time I was in, in Italy, in Rome, when squares were very peaceful and beautiful. And I realized the difference right there. Generally, uh, several of the writers, in fact, talk about this. The square is not about the architecture. It's it's not 
it is. It is about open space. It is about attractive space, if possible. It is about central location. But what it's really about is people. And when you talk about different squares, it's generally how people have used them over time. It is how people oh, use centuries. Yeah, it is how people use them. But I mean, just to stay in Rome for a second. Uh, the Piazza San Piazza San Pietro. Piet, I can't even say it. The Piazza San Pietro uh, is public in, in one sense, but it's not a public square in the sense that some of the other squares in Rome would be public squares, right? It has a very specific function. Uh, it's 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 hard up against a basilica and an apostolic palace. Uh, it's a public square, and yet it has a function that's more private. Fair or unfair? Um, could you tell me that more about that square? Because that's one I don't really know. Oh, well, the Piazza San Pietro is right there in the Vatican City. Is where, that St. Peter's? Yes, is that what you yeah, mean? Yeah, St. Peter's Square. Yeah, exactly. So okay. there, there um, it is. Yes, that's right. It is a private square. And, in fact, there's a photograph in the book, which I find charming. It's, I wanted to end with photo- great, charming photographs. And it's about people dancing mm-hmm. in St. Peter's. And I would say, yes, it's a private square, but the public pours in. Mm-hmm. The public pours in to go into St. Peter's. The public pours in to hear the Pope. The public pours in. So maybe it's a hybrid, but I would say it's more for the people. Um, in some cases, uh, squares are set up not necessarily for people to flow in and out as they please and doing as they please, but for whoever is calling the tune to put on whatever kind of parade, pageantry, uh, or dedication they want. I mean, Red Square comes to mind, the piece that you've got in the book uh, for Red Square. I mean, it, it, at least it wasn't always intended for anybody to use any way they want. That's right. And it's interesting. Certain squares grew up for a long time, and uh, a long time ago, and they grew up organically. Mm-hmm. And they become rather chaotic spaces and very populated spaces then and now. These other squares, such as Red Square, such as Tiananmen Square, huge squares, are imposed on the people by the governments. As someone said, George Packer in the book, great powers make great squares. And you, I agree with you totally. They are not there for daily public use, and they're generally not used um, for in daily fare. So, uh, in fact, yeah, go ahead. sorry, um, there's a very interesting comparison between Red Square and Grand Market Square, both huge public squares, and how they are so different, even though they were both communist cultures. So I want to uh, get David Bullier into the conversation. So uh, city square, public square, that's maybe a little bit different from the idea of the commons. I mean, they overlap quite a bit. But uh, I do picture the commons as at least being intended uh, for all kinds of use. And and David, maybe I'm romanticizing this a little bit, but I I picture a semi-agrarian past where the commons, I could maybe even bring my own little flock of sheep in there to graze uh, on the commons. And maybe next to me, there'd be a a busker uh, entertaining people and then uh, around the way, some other group of people doing something else. First of all, has it typically ever been that way? Well, a a commons is not just a space or a plot of land. It's really a socially managed uh, resource in which there's some community that, you know, governs it, has rules, and enforces those rules. So it's kind of a social system. And some of the squares you cited really are state mandated squares that the state controls it. A commons is one that the people really control and own from the bottom up. And uh, you are seeing a lot of hybrid public squares like uh, 
Zuccotti Park in New York City, where the protests of Occupy were, you know, that was a so-called pr- privately owned public space because the developer nearby had gotten uh, the right to build uh, build higher and, and violate certain zoning rules if he provided a public space. So it was nominally public, but it was privately owned. Yeah, and I, I feel that there are spaces, David, that are nom- nominally that are publicly owned, but nominally are kind of that are kind of private in a way, uh, or at least encroachingly private. I think even of you know, I'm going to mention something that people really love, which is Union Square in San Francisco. I mean, obviously that's essentially a public square, a public park, but it feels like a servant of commerce. It's surrounded, you know, by big corporate office buildings and expensive shopping districts. It, to me, it feels less like a place where you know, I, I can stand on a box and, and give a speech and, and more like a place where I can take a break from my shopping. It is precisely. You might even, you know, in our digital era, you might consider it kind of a, a corporate Facebook platform where the corporate interests there simply want the window dressing of the social social milieu, but they don't want the real authenticity of a commons where people can stand on a soapbox or have their own vernacular rules and interests. And so the other thing that I'm noticing, um, David, is that um, things that, well, for example, we live in Connecticut. Connecticut's a fundamentally a rather socially and uh, conservative place. So one of the things that I really like about public squares, actually, let me just swing this over uh, for a second to, to Katie Marin. So there's all kinds of things that people do in public squares, Katie. And one of the things that I love that they do on peaceful days when there's no protesting is I love the idea that there's public entertainment. You know, there is somebody on stilts juggling torches, you know, and there's somebody playing a violin and, and you know, and they've got half out there and you can throw money in. And, and I mean, it, it does seem like one of the beautiful functions of a pub, public, square, public square properly u- used is that we all gather and, and, and laugh at the same things and, and clap for the same things. I don't know how much of that you found, Katie, in going through all these essays. I smiled as you talked about that because it paints such a beautiful picture and it's so totally true. Squares, the, the most clear but it sounds very simple, but it really isn't principle that came out of this is that squares are all about people, and people need to be together. That is just human nature, and that's been human nature forever. I think one square that is like the New England squares we're talking about is Jama El Fana, which is in Marrakesh. Mm-hmm. And every single day now, for hundreds of years, there is what David Ajay calls a dance of activity over the day. And it starts in the morning with juice vendors, people coming in with selling food and household household goods. Then other sorts of merchants float in and out. Then in the afternoon, there are snake charmers, fortune tellers, all sorts of kinds of entertainers uh, to attract tourists. And then in the evening, uh, it becomes, again, very native in the sense of dancers and musicians for the, the people who live there and storytellers. Storytellers who have been telling the same sort of stories for centuries, so keeping the tradition of history. And, you know, Katie Marin, one of the things that I thought about reading some of these essays, too, is the the trends that have gone on, particularly in American public life. So uh, if you go to the 19th century, you know, squares like this are are really important. Uh, People do need to gather. They get together. They find each other that way. They exchange information that way. And then as the 20th century drags along, especially the post-World War II era, people have this kind of dream, really kind of getting away from cities, uh, having their own little castles with an acre of land or a half acre of land, you know, this place 
place where they can go and pursue loneliness and not have to see anybody. And it's kind of mirrored a little bit in hotels, too. Hotels used to have really crappy rooms and really beautiful common areas because the notion was you didn't stay in your room that much. You went down to the common area and talked to other travelers, other people who, you know, were uh, meeting at the same crossroads that you were at. And But so in the latter part of the 20th century, it seemed as though we retreated from all of those kinds of common experiences. And, and it, it now seems as though certainly the millennial generation, to a certain degree, I mean, we don't want to overstate it, but, but, but Katie, it seems like they're gravitating back towards cities, and that probably means getting out of your little apartment and into one of these public spaces. I have so many thoughts on that one. I think first, very importantly, you could compare uh, parks and squares. And in cities, parks are retreats. They're a place to do just what you say. Go off and be alone. Think. Uh, Appreciate nature. Squares are where you pile in to be in the midst of things. The millennials are interesting because unlike people of my age, they didn't have the kind of freedom that we did because the world isn't as safe as it used to be. So they have, in a way, created their own virtual squares through the Internet, through social media. I learned through this that people, again, my age, who are not digital natives, they didn't grow up with digital world right around them, they tend to operate on their own when they're dealing with their devices, whereas kids tend to huddle around them. And in that sense, they're forming, again, another square. So um, and so that's the distinction, maybe, uh, Katie, in New York between Central Park, a place where you can probably go a little find, find a little shady spot by yourself or read a book, do whatever it is you want to do. And Washington Square Park, which has the name square right in it. It's confined. It's geometric. Um, you're kind of pushed together. There are street performers. There are people doing all kinds of other things and you don't get away from one another. I totally agree with that. To me, Washington Square Park is both. It is a hybrid, and there are those examples around the world. So uh, Washington D- Square Park is yeah. a great one. So, David, I mean, obviously, uh, we love the idea of a public square or a public space as some, a place where you can do what you want. But let's just stay with actually publicly owned spaces for a while. Not all of them function the same way. For example, here in Hartford, uh, I think you still have to get a permit if you want to be a busker in a public park, you know, if you want to entertain people with, you know, juggling or magic tricks or playing your violin. The last I knew, you had to get a permit to do that in some place that's kind of just basically owned by the taxpayer. I don't know how uncommon that is, but my suspicion is that, you know, I mean, cities sometimes have an interest in controlling behavior. Well, that's absolutely true, especially in this uh, post-9-11 era when the public authorities want to maintain a tight grip. I mean, I think the Occupy movement was uh, maybe the first case where we had serious uh, controls over how public gatherings could occur because there was such concern about violence and the rest, even though they were uh, quite peaceful pro- protests. And, you know, so we are seeing the, the tightening of controls and the so-called free speech zones where they're trying to sequester people into where they may make a statement, you know, in a place that's often way far away from where the candidates or the, uh, the uh, object of the protest is quite a distance away. So I think this is a concern because the people ought to own these squares with the most minimal necessary uh, state interventions. Okay, David, let's just stay with this for a second. So the people absolutely ought to own taxpayer government-owned squares. Uh, They don't always uh, have perhaps the kind of access, free access they 
could or should, not just for protests, but just for anything, you know, just for doing stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So there's that. But then there's also the privatization of public space. And so in the in the 1990s, 1980s, 1990s, early aughts, a lot of this was fought bizarrely enough over shopping malls. Here in Connecticut, we had two cases that went to the Supreme Court, one involving West Farms Mall, another involving the Crystal Mall in Waterford, uh, raising the question of whether this was the new town square. Was it a public space? It certainly had usurped an awful lot of the foot traffic that would have gone through a public space in the past. They were all going to the malls at that time. So could you hand out leaflets? Uh, could you could you speak out about something? Were you free to do as you please there? If people curtailed you, if the mall management or security curtailed your activity, was that an abridgment of your freedom of speech? And the answer that our state Supreme Court gave was no, it's not. They're not they're they're not a public space. They're not a public entity. They're not required to uphold your First Amendment rights. Only the government can uphold or curtail or be accused of curtailing your your First Amendment rights. So we fought this out on malls. And I feel like people don't like to go to malls anymore anyway. So it's moving out into other places like I'm sure, David, you're seeing it with these mixed use developments. Well, you've seen it all over. I mean, really, you're seeing uh, corporate challenges to the state for sovereignty itself. I mean, that's what the trade treaties are all about. And so it's no surprise that we see it in all these other different areas. I mean, I think we're seeing it as well in uh, digital spaces where should the government or should corporations or should the people have control over their own data and the privacy rights. You know, as Snowden showed the abuses of that, the, the tech world is pushing back, and then citizens are saying we're going to take things into our own hand with our own uh, bottom-up encryption. So I think there there really is a, a political contest over control of spaces, whether they're virtual, physical, or otherwise. Yeah, and we'll get to maybe a little bit more to the, the cyber city squares or the cyber commons uh, towards the end of the show, David. But you know, even now, okay, for example, uh, I, near where I'm sitting, uh, in West Hartford Center, there was essentially a transfer of public land, land into private hands. There's a development called Blueback Square. It has a square, it has a square in its name. There's a, there is a square. But as far as I can tell, it's privately held. Uh, th- I think this is not unusual. It's, I mean, it has the town library. Uh, abutting it. It has the town hall near it. But I believe actually the set that sort of open public space there I could be wrong about this. But I, from what I can tell, anyway, it's uh, privately controlled. Um, and now, downtown in Hartford, we had this uh, development called Adrian's Landing, which is completely publicly owned and publicly managed. Um, it's uh, a place where, you know, ideally it would become kind of a common space. Uh, recently, Donald Trump had a rally there. He rented the convention hall and there were protests outside. People were were allowed to assemble there and protest, and there were counter-protests from Trump people. But I was sort of even thinking, I was inside the hall where Trump was speaking, and he rented the convention hall space, but it's taxpayer-owned and taxpayer-managed, but it now had become private space, right? If he, he didn't want somebody there, if he wanted a protester thrown out, he could have his security people walk that person out the door. So what's your take on that? Is that okay for somebody to privately rent public space and then control it that way? Well, I think, of, of course it is. It's just kind of an anomaly for someone who is wants to aspires to represent the public to then declare it a proprietary private space, as he was trying to do. And I, this really, uh, that kind of incident really, I think, illustrates this blurring that's going on and the attempts to privatize public spaces and deny its legitimacy. And I think this is really kind of a worrisome development because any healthy democracy needs these open spaces in which 
uh, anyone can participate. Uh, serendipity can happen, and they're not controlled top-down in some either corporate or authoritarian way. You know, um, Katie Marin, we're going to get to the protest aspect of this in the next segment, but, um, you know, one of the things I think that's one of the kind of ironies of a public square, a city square, or any kind of public space, but I think especially a city square is, I think in the minds of most people, it's just there, right? It's always been there. It's been there for three, four, five hundred years, depending on where you are. It's always been there. It'll always be there. Maybe it changes. It mutates a little bit, depending on who's in power, who's out of power, uh, who wants to use it in certain ways, what kind of movements there are, but it's always there. And I wondered, going through these essays and thinking about city squares, it, it does seem to me that as people come back to the cities, maybe they're realizing, well, you really have to take care of this. In one way or another, city squares need us to, to watch over them. The, the assumption that somebody else is going to take care of it uh, might be a, a failed or a flawed assumption. Yes, I think that's true, because they aren't privately owned. Generally, they're owned by the government. So in that sense, the government takes it over. I think where you get into privately private people taking over a public space or are working on it is something more like the High Line, which is a public public square, I mean public park. And we follow all of the rules of public parks in New York. However, 99% of the money that is made, uh, raised to go to pay for the operation of the High Line is raised privately. It doesn't come to us from the city. So that, uh, and Central Park is another example because they have Central Park Conservancy. And they, this conservancy raises huge amounts of money each year to keep Central Park looking attractive and inviting for people and yeah. safe. One thing, I guess, um, if I can just sure. now, uh, talk about Toxham Square, because I found that one fascinating. As you know, there was a big protest there. And the reason the protest began, it became much bigger. The reason it began is because Erdogan wanted to take the park that is within the square and within that park, take up a lot of the space and make a shopping mall. <laughs> and the people revolted. And that is what caused that huge eruption and huge protest that then built with people, you know, against the entire government. Uh, for, that's in Istanbul for people who couldn't place it right away. Uh, and it's one of the essays in this book, City Squares, 18 Writers uh, on the Spirit and Significance of Squares Around the World. It's got uh, 93 photographs. It's got essays by a lot of your favorite writers, people like uh, Adam Gopnik writing about Place de Vosges and Zadie Smith writing about the squares of Rome and Venice uh, and Michael Kimmelman, the architecture critic, writing an introduction. Um, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk very specifically about how squares become at certain times the white-hot centers of protest. Public square, public square, serving justice in open air, public square. And we're back with a conversation about city squares and public spaces, the notion of the commons. Uh, with this is Katie Marin. She's her new book. She's the compiler of City Squares, 18 Writers on the Spirit and significant, uh, Significance of Squares Around the World. David Bollier is with us, activist, blogger, and author of eight books, including Think Like a Commoner, A Short Introduction to the Life of the Commons, also the co-founder of the Commons Strategies Group. Uh, joining us for this segment uh, is Jahan Nujem, uh, Egyptian-American documentary film 
filmmaker of several award-winning films, including Control Room and The Square, which is nominated for an Academy Award, of course. Uh, and we're going to talk very specifically uh, about what happens when a square becomes a center for protest, which uh, is something we're very familiar with, at least watching television on the news, but maybe not seeing it unfold ourselves. And so um, uh, Jahan Nujem has an essay in uh, Katie Marin's book, which gives us kind of a TikTok of Tahrir Square. Welcome to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, it's, it's been an honor to write for this book and, and an honor to be here. Um, tell us about Tahrir Square on an average day before it became so famous to the world. What was its function in the city be- before all that? It was a traffic roundabout and a place where you'd get stuck oftentimes for hours um, because it's really it's it's very much uh, in the center of the city where you have um, one of the largest government buildings on one side of it where if you had to have your passport renewed or any kind of government paperwork done, that was in a huge building on one side of the square, the American University on another side of the square, um, a, a bridge leading to the rest of town on, on the other, uh, and the Egyptian Museum on another side, um, uh, the secret sort of um, security, state security uh, on another side. So um, it, it, it held a very, very, very important place in terms of being able to um, you know, get to different parts of the city and to get things done. Um, but it, as I always knew it as a tra- traffic roundabout. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't have a history. It had um, a, a very important history of, of protest. But I'm saying since, since I grew up um, and, and being me living in Egypt, I lived about 10 minutes away from the square, um, it was mostly a traffic roundabout. Yeah, so it sounds like it wasn't a place where you were going to have a little picnic lunch or uh, see a street performer or throw a frisbee. <laughs> right. Well, I never did. I never did any of those. People, people did have uh, picnic lunches there sometimes, um, but it certainly never took the um, took on what happened in 2011, where people overtook the square and stayed there. It had been the site of protest, but what made January 2011 and the revolution in Egypt different is that people normally would have used the square for protest, been Many would have been arrested um, by police or gone home, and people never came back. But what happened in January was that people came back and they stayed and they refused to leave and they gained control over the square to the point where um, the police were outnumbered. Um, yeah, give us a little bit more of a sense. I mean, your uh, piece in the book, it really is kind of a TikTok uh, of what happened there. But um, just just in a short version, just tell us what passed before your eyes. What did you see happening in the square? Um, I got there a couple days after people had overtaken the square. Um, even though I live, um, as I said, about 10 minutes away, I had been out of the country. But to watch what was unfolding on um, television... Um, you know, people took to the square, first of all, because um, the revolution had began in Tunisia, um, and I think the Egyptian people were inspired by that. And the day that people really went to the street was called, was um, a celebration of National Police Day. And the anger towards the police and the brutality of the police had reached um, such a height by that point, um, especially because in June of the previous year, uh, a young man who was innocent named Khalid Said had been tortured to death, and his picture had appeared everywhere. 
And so people really went to the streets to protest um, on police day. And, uh, you know, one thing about Egypt is that people always kind of want to know what's going on um, in the streets. And so you had people marching from all different areas of the city, um, and they were going to be meeting in Tahrir Square, and they were calling down to people in the balconies, come down, come down, join us, um, bread, freedom, social justice. Um, and uh, people started joining, and uh, they gathered in the square, um, and uh, what happened was the, 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 the brute force on, the, on that initial day, on that initial um, people went down initially on a Wednesday, and then on a Friday, um, it was called the Friday of Rage. And uh, the brute force against people where many were killed um, uh, caused outrage. Um, and the use of tear gas, many went down to see what was going on, would never have ordinarily joined that protest, but um, ended up getting tear gassed, ended up getting attacked. And so they ended up coming back the next day. Then when the electricity, the, sorry, the... Um, the internet was cut off. People had no way of communicating with each other. So they went down to the streets to find out what was going on. And that just added to the numbers of people that, that were joining in the square. I, um, I landed in, in Egypt, um, and about half an hour after I left the airport, uh, my car was stopped. I was asked for my passport. I handed over probably a mistake, both my Egyptian and my American passport, um, which immediately had them asking me, you know, are you a spy? Are you Egyptian-American? Who are you? The country is erupting. Um, they went through my car. They found uh, some DVDs of a previous film that I had made about protest in Egypt in 2007. Um, I was taken in, questioned. I tried to destroy the evidence. Um, in a bathroom, uh, I outlined this in the book, and um, and the janitor came in holding up the pieces of glass as I was being interrogated of the uh, the pieces of the DVD, um, and uh, and the interrogators just looked at me and said, you know, do you, you know, t t tell us what's going on? Um, and I had been terrified because I had no idea who they were plain clothes wearing plain clothes. I had no idea who was interrogating me. Um, and finally, finally, I was let out about six hours later, um, went, uh, dropped my bags at home, went directly to the square, and there found just this incredible, incredible gathering of people, um, men, women, old, young, uh, rich, you know, wealthy, uh, you know, all different classes, um, and I think what people were trying to recreate in that square um, was a vision of what they wanted to see Egypt be. Um, you talked to many people who felt like this is our chance to show what we want Egypt to become. Um, Ahmed, one of, who became one of the main characters in our film, The Square, said, you know, I felt the responsibility of a president being there, um, that the way that I held myself, the way that I talked to people, um, was so important. Um, and I, I think that that's what these squares across the world, these public spaces have been able to do, is that they're a, a reflection of what's happening in the country, but they're also a place where people can show the, their dreams and vision. And that's what, what's incredible about what Katie's been able to do in terms of bringing these squares from different places in the world is you, you get to see how uh, that has manifested itself in, in different squares around the world.
You know, one point that you make in your essay is that Tahrir Square has been this uh, over the years in 1919 and 1946, don't use it against me. Uh, has any attempt been made to alter Tahrir Square so that it's it's less available that way? Oh, many. I mean, if you, uh, when you watch the film, you'll see that the, the square is a kind of canvas and it takes on, um, it, it, at one, you know, one week it's filled with people and the next week um, everybody has been, been cleared from the square, the tents have been knocked down, um, the square has been flooded with water so that it's difficult to um, you can't pitch a tent there. You can't sleep there. Um, the electricity is cut off, so there is no um, there's no lights. Uh, of course, people manage to figure out how to um, get electricity from you know the metro station light or or something. Um, but yeah, the the square many many times over the past um, few years has, has been physically blocked by army or police. You know, David Bull- David Bullier, these squares, they become kind of symbolic that way, not only uh, in terms of how they're used at any given moment, but whether you want to have a lot of them. Maybe you could say something about what Barcelona did uh, after the fall of Franco. Well, I mean, they, they closed them down because these are gathering spots for essentially the people to assert their own moral and social legitimacy, which is something the state doesn't like. So uh, that's one reason I focus on the commons, because the commons is creating a third category between or separate from public and private in which the people can uh, be self-organized and assert their own legitimacy as a political force. And, of course, that's why squares are often controversial and why the state uh, has a very mixed feelings about them if they don't control them. Um, Katie, uh, in your, your book, there are successful and unsuccessful uses uh, of uh, squares. Uh, I think Kiev would be another example of, uh, of one where uh, getting, getting people out of the square is one thing. Having the kind of results you want uh, are another. Tell us about Kiev. I, and I agree with that totally. Kiev is fascinating because it started with one man. One man who said, we have to fight back against our totalitarian government. We just have to. And he sent out an, a message and uh, over um, his iPhone. And within an hour, hundreds of people were there. Within three hours, thousands of people were there. I bet that's quite similar to what Shahan desi- describes in Tahrir. But in that case, social media drove the people to the square and it immediately became known as Euromaidan. Maidan is a word that means square in several languages. But in this case, it was a hashtag. So it was fascinating to me. This is the, the biggest one where the virtual and the physical merge. And it went on for a long time. But Jahan, in fact, says it in her essay, it starts, maybe starts a revolution, but it can't keep it going. And that has to be done outside of the square. Um, Jahan, if I go to Tahrir Square today, what will I see? Uh, it's a back to a, a grassy area where um, there's been a monument um, put up uh, in memory of 
people that died there, but you won't see, um, it's off limits. I mean, people cannot, can no longer gather there. But um, just, just interestingly enough, uh, Katie was talking about Kiev, and we haven't talked about this, but um, when our film came out, um, they actually showed it in Maidan. Um, and so, uh, and Ahmed, the main protester in our film, um, was beamed into the square in uh, in Maidan and Kiev, and um, so the protesters were talking back and forth. So there was this kind of digital connection as well between people of squares talking with each other. Um, so uh, it's kind of inter- it was it was interesting. About a year after the film came out, yeah, quite an um, I- quite an image. Yeah, go ahead. But but yeah, now um, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to gather in the square. I mean, in fact, um, the government has done everything in its power to close down any kind of um, meeting place, gathering space uh, to be able to talk politics. Most of the places that were known, the coffee shops where people gathered when the square um, would be closed down or occupied by police or army, many young young people would go to the coffee shops in the surrounding area. Those have been closed down. The Townhouse Gallery, which was an art space um, downtown, has also been closed down. Um, so it's uh, people find other ways to meet, but it has been quite demoralizing over the past um, two years as these spaces for um, conversation, political exchange, dreams of a different future. Um, all these these spaces, these physical spaces, have been closed. Well, as the person who made the uh, Oscar-nominated documentary, The Square, how does it make you feel? How does it make you feel about the, the outcome of the movement that you were filming? Um, I think uh, I, I think that many feel like, I think that it's a very, very, you can't, you can't deny that it's a very, very dark time in Egypt um, and that it's, uh, it's very difficult for people who have lost friends, lost family, put their lives on the line to fight for change. However, um, I don't think that we've gone back to square one. I think that um, there's many, many, so many people saw um, President Morsi being held accountable, um, uh, Mubarak behind bars. They saw an accountability um, and, and, and our, our leadership have to answer um, to their crimes in a way that uh, has never happened before. And 70% of our population is under the age of 40. Um, so the fact that so many of these young people have witnessed what happened, witnessed what happened in the square, witnessed a people's movement, does give me hope for the future, even though politically we're going through a very difficult time right now. Um, people who want to know more about this, you really have to watch this movie, uh, The Square. Uh, it's directed by Jahan Nujem. Uh, she's been joining us for this segment. When we come back, hey, I also want to throw the phones up. And this is sort of a public square in its own way. It's talk radio. It's public radio. Uh, give us a call. If you're trying to use the city square, the town square, first of all, is it still there? What do you use it for? Do people, do, 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 are you allowed to use it for you, for what you want it uh, to be used for? Um, what do you think about the, about the conversation we're having right now? 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. You can also tweet us at WNPR Colin.
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and Ross Levin Square with the nearby Piazza de Cayon Wolf. Our intern is Stephanie Reef. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Horace Bushnell. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff making speeches in Hyde Park, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, The Nose Drinks Lemonade with Beyonce. And now, back to Colin. She won't really be with us tomorrow, but we'll be done in our New Haven studios with kind of a New Haven-flavored uh, nose. And we are going to talk about Lemonade by Beyonce. Uh, it's something you might want to catch up with a little bit if you want to get ready for tomorrow's show. But even if you don't uh, know anything about this so-called visual album uh, that uh, was released by Beyonce under kind of... Um, and you, it's, the release of it is an art and a story all by itself. Anyway, we'll explain it all to you. You won't be in Terra Incognita tomorrow. So uh, join us. We'll be in our New Haven studios. Uh, right now we're talking about public spaces with Katie Marin. Her book is City Squares, 18 Writers on the Spirit and significant of, signi- Significance of Squares Around the World. Uh, David Bollier, an activist, blogger, and author of eight books, including Think Like a Commoner, A Short Introduction to the Life of the Commons, and Viral Spiral, How the Commoners Built a Digital Republic of their own. He's also the co-founder of the Commons Strategies Group. So um, I want to talk to both of you uh, about the notion that there is a cyber square, that there's a city square or something like it out in cyberspace. But maybe before we do that, let me just go off that script a little bit, uh, Katie, and say, as I was thinking about this show today, one thing that I was realizing is that to a certain degree, you know, although we may be physically present in city squares, we increasingly de-physicalize ourselves. You know, I mean, when I'm in city squares or any kind of so-called third space, you know, the, the, the place that isn't your work and it's not your home, maybe it's a coffee shop, maybe it's something else, I'm surrounded by people with earbuds. Sometimes I'm one of those people. Uh, I'm surrounded by people looking at laptops or phones or tablets uh, instead of looking at each other. That some of these spaces during the Enlightenment were places where people gathered to, in fact, exchange ideas, meet one another, uh, a little bit more conversational intercourse between people from different uh, classes. uh, And and so ideas were exchanged. But I'm wondering about this. It seems... I mean, at exigent times, we're all physically present. But like on an average day, I don't know. Are we paying attention to each other in these beautiful and interesting public spaces? I think what you're describing seems to be all over. And to me, you're right. Squares were created even back in the days of ancient Greece. That's when they started. And they started as marketplaces called Agora. And it's where people could come and talk to each other and hash out whatever interaction they had face-to-face. And that's what it's always been for. And you're right. I agree with you. Um, People are listening to their music or their books or whatever they're listening to and just either walking through the space or sitting in the space or whatever. And I don't know what we do about that. I I have a hunch it's somehow changing a little bit, but I don't know. However, when Jillian writes about the virtual square, which is how we end the book, I found that concept fascinating how grown-ups who did not grow up, as I mentioned earlier, with iPhones tend to do it on their own. The younger people tend to do it together, and in that sense, they are face-to-face. So, David Bullier, let's talk about that. One response, as Katie says, to the uh, the idea that everybody in the physical space has got earbuds and, and eyes on a screen is to create something on the other side of that screen, a world in which people can exchange ideas, can bond together uh, and know one another in the way that we want them to know one another in public spaces. So how's that working out? 
well, I mean, I think we can can over-idealize the former public square that everybody used to go there when, in fact, you had back alleys on the other side of the railroad tracks and and speakeasies and so forth where people of like minds wanted to meet. So the same thing's going on in, in digital spaces. Some of them are wildly heterogeneous, and you have all sorts of different people who, who check in, and others are far more specialized affinity groups. And I don't think that's necessarily bad, but uh, certainly the physical spaces have a qualitatively different nature because your body is there, your senses are there, and you can't necessarily uh, check out or you at least have the option to connect with people. So, you know, I've, I'm quite comfortable with these different options we have so long as we do have uh, physical spaces to meet uh, in our great cities because that's an important element of any vital democratic culture. But it seems that the cyberspace faces some of the same issues. There will there will be people who want to control the cyber commons, uh, and some of that control will have to be uh, metaphorically hacked, excuse me, hacked away at David in order to keep it available to the public. Well, well, no. The question is who's who's doing that controlling. You know, is the government going to intervene and make those choices? I don't think it should. Uh, I think that there's always the possibility of forking the code and going off and st- starting your own your own platform. And I think that's an appropriate one. Other platforms like Wikipedia have devised all sorts of elaborate governance rules for saying this is acceptable, this is not, this is an orderly place, we're not going to have trolls or vandals uh, destroying the order that we've created. And that's legitimate. So, you know, I think there's different governance schemes for different type, types of, uh, of online uh, forums and spaces. You know, Katie Mayer and I just want to end with uh, um, an allusion to something that David said just a few minutes ago uh, in your book, City Squares. You know, you have writers picking different squares to write about. But but he's right. People have always chosen different things. And in a big enough city, you get to make all kinds of different choices. Uh, Adam Gopnik is in love with Place des Vosges uh, over in the Marais district of Paris. But some people want to be across the river in the Luxembourg Gardens, which are kind of a different kind of congregating space. Uh, and, and then, you know, Hemingway and Orwell wanted to be at Place de la Contrascarpe, which was this dangerous place for most of its existence and maybe the kind of place where you run into a much more edgy character, uh, even in the 1920s or 30s. Before that, you know, for hundreds of years, you might run into somebody who would murder you. But I mean, so everybody goes to where they want to go, right? There isn't just one city square in a lot of cities. Totally right. And again, people can go to parks or they can go to squares. Interestingly, when I've been in parks and studying them, I've noticed less people with their earphones or less people on their phones. But one one thing which I think really tells you how people need people is, for instance, after 9-11 here in New York City, mm-hmm. Union Square, which right. wasn't much used, suddenly became a huge focal point. It became the focal point for people who grieved. People came up with flowers, with candles, with photos. And they wanted to be with other people. And those other people were strangers, but they somehow felt a tie to be with them and needed to be with them. Same thing after some of the terrorist attacks in Paris. People flocked to the Place de République to be together. And again, protest. So then there are certain times when people absolutely need to be together. It's a great place. point about Union Square. I mean, I, I was there in those days. And I mean, I think it was chosen partly because it was near enough to Ground Zero so that it was near, far enough away so that it was a little bit away from, you know, the worst of the clouds, uh, the worst of the smells, you know, and, and it was just a, a, a place with the right character in exactly the right spot. I agree with you totally.
Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thanks again to uh, Katie Marin. Her book is City Squares, 18 Writers on the Spirit and Significance of Squares Around the World. 93 photographs, uh, essays from some of your favorite writers, and maybe some that you'll be discovering uh, through these essays. Uh, we, th- it really is, it does make you just want to pack your bags and, and go to some of these places uh, and see some of these squares that you've never seen before. Also, thanks so much to David Bollier. Uh, he is the co-founder of the Commons Strategies Group. His, book, his books include The Viral Spirit, Viral Spiral, sorry, How the Commoners Built a Digital Republic of Their Own. We also spoke to Jahan Nujem. She is the director uh, and filmmaker of The Square, nominated for an Academy Award. It's about Tahrir Square. I bet you can get it on Netflix or Amazon or something like that. Uh, so, And it's definitely worth worth watching. All right, thanks to Betsy Kaplan for doing the show. Thanks for Wolfie for being on the, on the board. We'll be down in New Haven tomorrow for a regular episode of The Nose. Also, all special thanks to Ross Levin, our intern, who took great notes and and uh, gave me uh, a lot of help in uh, understanding uh, some of the essays in Katie's book. That women's pay being unequal to men is an abomination. We are the generation who... Is anybody out there? Can anybody hear me? This Grand Canyon public square sucks.